morning. Good morning. So, yeah, we're, um, it's great to be with you. We are carrying on our series on John. Um, this morning, uh, we're still in John chapter 1. Uh, we are for another month or so, but then we'll speed up a little bit. But so much of the themes of John and so much of what is in John are set out right from the beginning and kind of flow through. So we're taking a little bit more time on the first chapter but don't do the maths and go, it's going to be 2034, isn't it, by the time we finish this? So we, we take a little bit of time on the first chapter, but then we hopefully we'll move through it a bit quicker. But this morning, um, right back at the beginning, the first verse, um, looking at the idea of Jesus as the Word. Um, and uh, these first verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the middle, uh, in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This hymn at the beginning of John holds so much for us. And I just want to focus on those first few words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I want to extrapolate some of our well what does that mean and if Jesus is the word what does that mean about how we approach scripture as the word so there's a story that I used to hear fictional story that I used to hear about a guy which is when I was a child a teenager and it was about this guy and he wanted to know what God wanted him to do he wanted to seek God for direction on how to handle a particular situation he was in and he wanted to be obedient to God so he sat with his bible I've done this myself a few times. Sat with his Bible and prayed and then opened his Bible and pointed to a place on the page, on this random page, and read Mark chapter 3, verse 29. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. That's not good. So he thought, okay, don't give up, try again. Closed his Bible, prayed a little bit harder to God to speak to him, opened it up randomly at a page, pointed randomly at a point on the page, Matthew 27.5. So Jesus threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Down, but not out. He gave it one last go. Closed his Bible, prayed really, really hard. Opened his Bible, pointed his finger, randomly a verse. Luke 10, 37. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, how we read the Bible matters, right? It's a book of immense value and passion. But it's also a book we should handle with immense wisdom and care. I've primarily in my life had two Bibles my whole life. They're both falling to pieces, heavily marked, scribbled in, annotated, underlined, read, reread, studied, loved. The Bible has inspired me, moved me, challenged me, brought me to tears, and brought me deep joy. It's also made me deeply uncomfortable, even offended me at times. It's confused me lots of times. I have changed my mind and my understanding of many scriptures over the years, some of them, many of them, more than once. I have seen new revelations through the scriptures almost every time I've read them. Too many times to count. Sometimes revelations that have stopped me in my tracks, sometimes revelations that have led me to run and tell people the wonders of what I have just seen. But I've also used scripture to condemn people, 
attack people. I've used it to prove my own points of view. I've used it to belittle or diminish the views and perspectives of others. I've used it to... I've used scripture to justify myself when I've been wrong. I've used it to get my own way or prove my own intellect. I've used the Bible to win or even show off. Confession of regret. I've seen it used to justify hate and violence and war, even murder, to promote businesses and industries and practices that destroy the planet we are custodians of. It's been used to justify slavery, ethnic cleansing, Racism, misogyny, it's been used to silence and oppress women, to exclude outsiders, foreigners, minorities. It's been used to promote greed and power and justify and protect those in power who abuse people, whether that be spiritually, sexually, physically, mentally. How we use the Bible isn't always good. Not always things we should be proud of. How we read the Bible matters. You may have heard people insist that the Bible is infallible. Infallible means it has no mistakes, it's never wrong. Or that it's inerrant, which means without error. And you may have heard this. Often, you know, there are these camps, and there's one camp who goes, absolutely everything in the Bible is absolutely true, it can't be questioned. And there's other people who go, well, no, you pick and choose the bits that you like. Well, neither of those paths are right. And so we often... We are encouraged to believe that the whole Bible is equally inspired. Every verse carries the same weight. And so we have a flat view of scripture, which can lead us to quoting verses from all over the place, just to make points. Verses that have no correlation with each other or relationship to each other. And because, but because it's in the Bible, it must be true. But like we just see in the story that I've just told, that doesn't always work out in the best ways. And there are things in the Bible that seem weird. There do seem to be contradictions or even errors. So what do we do with those? And some stuff doesn't feel as relevant as other stuff. So what do we do with that? And some stuff doesn't make God sound so great. So what do we do with that? A few years ago, we did a series on the book of Mark. And in the book of Mark, there is a seeming error. Jesus is challenged about his disciples picking heads of grain as they walk through a field on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees challenge Jesus because it is understood in the law to be against the Sabbath, laws to pick grain on the Sabbath. In response, Jesus cites the occasion in the Old Testament when David got consecrated food from the temple. And Jesus says, do you remember in the days of Abiathar? The problem is, when we go back to Samuel, and we read the story, the priest isn't Abiathar, the priest is Ahimelech. Well, that's awkward. So I did a little bit of research all these years ago when we were doing Mark, and I kind of went around a whole bunch of people and I was like, so who do you think got this wrong? Do you think Jesus got it wrong? Do you think Mark got it wrong? Or do you think the Old Testament writers got it wrong? Who got it wrong? What was really interesting was everyone was surprised that that was there, that this seeming error was there, and they were uncomfortable to hear of the error. But when pressed, almost everyone thought that the error was probably made by the writer of Samuel. A couple thought Mark might have got it wrong. No one thought Jesus might have misremembered the story. 
But how interesting that most people thought that the person who was capturing these stories at the time, the person closest to the event, was most likely to get it wrong. But we don't like to believe that Jesus in his humanity could have got it wrong. By proximity, we don't like the idea of Mark getting it wrong. So we seem happy to agree that maybe the Old Testament writer could have got it wrong when it actually, that's the least logical conclusion. But it says something about how we approach scripture and how we deal with apparent error or contradiction in scripture. Actually, in that instance, I studied a little and I suspect Jesus was saying something deeper. You see, Abiathar was a Himalek son and so was alive, meaning it was technically in the day of Abiathar, although we are making a stretch there. But Abiathar means father of abundance. And so was Jesus saying to these Pharisees who were griping and sniping over a few heads of grain on the Sabbath, do you remember in the days when God was a father of abundance and David ate the consecrated bread? In an effort to illustrate their meanness of spirit and how they had twisted the law until it had come to look nothing like God at all, Jesus reminds them that God is a father of abundance. Maybe that's what's going on there. But Jesus is doing some stretching of scripture to make the point. How we read the Bible matters. You see, the Bible isn't just one book. It's 66 books in the version we tend to read. Other versions have a few more. But these books are all written at different times, spanning thousands of years by different people in different contexts, from different countries, in different empires. People who are inspired by God, but write in different styles for different reasons. It contains history books and law books and poetry books and books of amassed wisdom and prophetic books, eyewitness accounts, letters to particular people in particular churches at particular times. And then there are the apocalyptic books, which means literature that uses imagery and allegory and hyperbole to illustrate something about the end of the world, the destruction of all things and the ending of all things. And yet, amidst all the horror the book of Revelation, which is at the end of the Bible and is the most famous of the apocalyptic genre, the book of Revelation ends, shockingly for apocalyptic literature, with the renewal and reconciling of all things. And God being with us here on earth, not us evacuating off to heaven, but God descending and establishing his kingdom here and bringing about the reconciliation of all things. Quite a surprise for apocalyptic literature. There are surprises all over this book. And it's important that we know what we are reading. We shouldn't read poetry with the same literal sense as history books. Eyewitness accounts and letters are trying to achieve different things. The Bible is a collection of stories of how God pursues us and interacts with us, is with us, loves us, saves us. It is a collection of very human stories of how we fail and how we live and how we die. It is a collection of stories and poems and pictures and ideas of what God is like, where we all came from, what we are all created for, how it all began, and where this is all headed. And so we need to read it with care and wisdom. How we read the Bible 
matters. And right at the beginning of the book of John, we get a very surprising statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Followed in verse 14 with, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. These verses are game-changing. See, God, John introduces Jesus to us as the Word of God. The Word who was there at the beginning, which takes us back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the world, and God went on to speak creation into existence. And the Word that spoke at creation has a name, and his name is Jesus. It takes us to the law in Exodus, which instructed the Israelites in how to live and how to be community in such a way that the world would know God, how to be reconciled with God. The word of the law is identified here as being Jesus. Not just a bunch of rules, but a revelation of the heart and character and nature of who God is. The word of the Lord that came to the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the others, is now revealed not, as not just being some words that came to mind supernaturally, but an encounter with the person of Jesus himself. It's really important that we understand this. In one verse, John has placed Jesus at the beginning of all things, at the centre of all things, and this word has become flesh and is now with us. John reveals Jesus to be the word of God. It is Jesus who is infallible, inerrant, perfect, and scripture now finds its rightful place as the scriptures which reveal Jesus. In fact, all scripture reveals Jesus. Jesus is not a character who rocks up three quarters of the way through. Jesus was there before it all. He spoke all creation into existence. He is throughout all the scriptures, speaking into them, bringing life to them, and being revealed through them all. He is the full revelation of what God is like. And this is a really big idea. God always looks like Jesus. And all scripture is properly read through him. Throughout the history of humanity, we have sought to know God, to see God, to understand what God is like. But by definition, if God is God, then he's beyond our understanding. He transcends the capacity and the extent of language. He cannot be confined to our definitions and ideas. He is beyond time, beyond existence, beyond comprehension. He's beyond language. He's beyond us. And so we reach for ideas of what God is like. Which is why in so many of our scriptures, not just Jewish, Christian scriptures, across religions, across cultures, across tribes, across empires, across all people throughout time, we have used allegory and imagery and simile and images of God is like. 
God is like a storm. God is like a river. God is like water. God is like breath. God is the sun and the moon, a father, a mother, fire, wind. The similes go on and on and on. And we tell stories that reveal something of what God is like. Creation stories and flood narratives speak to God's nature and character. It's really important that we understand when we read our creation story and our flood narrative in the Bible that they are a response to the other creation stories and flood stories that were in the empires around in the Mesopotamian empire or the Babylonian empire which talks of gods being violent and at war with each other which talks of gods being petty and and dismissive of people which talks of God um, playing games with people and disregarding humanity and in the midst of that the Hebrews write this creation story this flood narrative that says no no we think God is in union with himself and invites us into relationship with him we think God isn't the sort of God who smites people across the earth We think God is a sort of God who promises and makes covenant with us and says, I will never be that sort of God. These stories tell of something of what God is like. And these stories are passed down from our forefathers, how God saved them or revealed himself to tell of a God who wants to be with us and in relationship with us. It's stories and allegory and simile and imagery. And then Jesus. The word made flesh. Mystery in our presence. God revealed. Walking, living, sleeping, eating, breaking bread, drinking wine, telling stories, laughing, crying, sharing life. God with us. All scripture fulfilled right before our eyes Jesus is the revelation of what God is like the fullness of God not just one part of the Trinity but the whole Godhead because it says in Colossians 2 verse 9 for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form later on in John Jesus himself said if you have seen me you have seen the Father it's quite the claim But here's the point. If Jesus is the word, capital W, of the Lord, then what does that mean we do with the Bible? Which was and still is understood to be the word of the Lord. How do we read scripture in light of this? What do we do with those scriptures where God doesn't look like Jesus? Firstly, point of clarity. Here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we get to ignore any of scripture. I am not saying that we disregard anything we don't like the idea of. That's lazy and unwise. I'm not saying we rely on our idealized romantic imagination of Jesus as the revelation of what God looks like. We don't just get to go, oh, Jesus is my boyfriend and he'd never do anything nasty so I don't think oh, I don't like the idea of him saying that sort of thing we don't get to do that we rely on Jesus as revealed through scripture obviously the gospels but also the rest of the new testament and the old testament 
We don't get to ignore any of Scripture because we believe it all to be the inspired Word of God. In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Very familiar, famous verse. The context here, though, is really interesting. Remember, this is a letter written by a particular person, Paul, to a particular person, Timothy, at a particular time, 65 to 68 AD, in a particular situation, Ephesus. And Timothy is a young leader in the city of Ephesus. And there are some difficult challenges in the growing church in the city because the city is this melting pot of different cultures. There's Greek and Roman and Asian beliefs and cultures and the church is emerging in that context and so there are lots of discussions about what the scriptures mean for this church how relevant are the old testament scriptures and does the law and jewish tradition apply to them in ephesus and so they are throwing out large parts of scripture as having no relevance to them and nothing to say to them It's in this context that Paul says to Timothy, no, no, remind them that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. All is an emphatic term. Useful is not. But the encouragement here seems to be that the church in Ephesus should not disregard any of scripture, even those parts which are challenging or seemingly irrelevant to them, because all scripture is from God and is useful for a whole range of things including teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. By the same measure then we do not get to disregard scripture or dismiss it when it is difficult or confusing or seemingly contradictory. Instead we need to see and uncover the ways in which it reveals Jesus because all scripture reveals him and is revealed through him. Some of this is relatively obvious. There are a number of scriptures which instantly took on new life to the early church when led through, read through the lens of Jesus. Isaiah talks of one who will be pierced and crushed and led like a lamb to the slaughter to pay the price of the sin of us all. You can imagine the revelation that occurred in those first century followers when they read it again in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Indeed, there are lots of scriptures which talk of sacrifice, death, resurrection and one who will suffer. There are stories such as the Israelites' liberation from slavery where the angel of death passes them by because of the blood of the lamb which saves them and they are led to the new promised land where they reside with God. A foretaste of what was to come in Jesus takes on a whole new life in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. The story of a flood where God saves Noah and makes a new covenant of relationship. Jesus himself refers to the story of Jonah who was in the whale for three days in the pit of hell only to come back on the third day. Jesus himself claims this as a sign, a shadow of what was to come in his own death and resurrection. These are fairly obvious But what about some of the more complicated ones? Some of the verses where God seems to be violent, even angry and demanding and destructive. Verses which don't sit easily with a Jesus who tells his disciples to put down their swords. A Jesus who talks about forgiveness and commands us to love our enemies. 
a Jesus who demonstrates love and healing to Israel's enemies and refuses to destroy them and wipe them from the land. There is one such story in Genesis 22. God has given Abraham a son in his old age who God says will go on to produce a plethora of descendants. But in chapter 22, God tells Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him to God, to kill him on the altar on top of the mountain. It's quite jarring. Seems odd. It's not comfortable. And if we're reading scripture through the lens of Jesus, it doesn't look very much like Jesus. But if we study a bit further, we remember that in Genesis 11, Abraham comes from Ur of the Chaldeans. And in that land, they worshipped a god called Molech. And Molech was a god who demanded the sacrifice of children. So when Abraham took his son and tied him up and put him on the altar ready to sacrifice, God spoke to him and stopped him and provided another sacrifice for Abraham to make. So, did Abraham expect God would demand this sacrifice? Therefore, did Abraham project his understanding of God onto Yahweh God himself that God would demand the sacrifice of his son? This is the sort of time when people sacrifice their sons so this is what God would want of me because this is what I understand God's want of us sacrificing our children or did God tell Abraham it's that time when parents make the sacrifice to illustrate but he did it to illustrate how different he was as a God because when Abraham went to make the sacrifice God stopped him and told him he wasn't that sort of God in fact he was the sort of God who would provide the sacrifice because that sounds much more like Jesus, who became the sacrifice for us all. <coughs> Jesus is our lens. Brad Jerzak, theologian, writer, talks about how we should not approach the Old Testament alone. The Jewish tradition said that we could only enter into the Old Testament scriptures with a rabbi. And Brad suggests that we approach scripture with Jesus as our rabbi. So we should enter the scriptures with him, invite him to reveal, to illuminate, to speak to us through them. We see examples of Jesus illuminating the scriptures for his disciples and the religious leaders and changing their perspective of what the scriptures meant all through the gospels, challenging them to rediscover the essence of the law as justice and mercy rather than condemnation, challenging them to correct what they'd done with things like tithing and go, no, no, you need, you need to remember what that was always about in the first place. One time he's speaking to his disciples who've experienced some rejection in their message from the Samaritans. They've gone into a Samaritan town and they've been rejected and they're walking away from this with Jesus and they're moaning their hard luck and how badly they were treated. And they ask Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Seems like an odd question, doesn't it? Except they get this idea from the Old Testament. Elijah calls down fire from heaven to destroy a group of the king's men who are summoning him to see the king, because the king's not happy. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven and destroys them. So when they don't return, the king sends another 50, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven and destroys them. So we can see where the disciples might go, oh, if people upset you, the God we worship, just call down fire and he'll destroy them. They're referencing scripture. That's what they think God is like. They are being faithful. But Jesus says to them, 
You do not know what spirit you are of. Or to paraphrase, is he saying, that wasn't me. Or this kingdom isn't like that. Or God isn't like that. Or you are appealing to the spirit of death rather than life. And I am the spirit of life. In John 10, chapter 10. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Indeed, in this kingdom, at the beginning of Acts, when we see fire come down from heaven, it's the Spirit of God at Pentecost. A very different fire. A very different God. A very different kingdom. That's what this kingdom is like. We see other examples where God seems to suggest that other things which happened to the Old Testament might not have been entirely what God wanted. Even in the Old Testament, we see God saying that he didn't desire sacrifices, but rather for his people to demonstrate justice, mercy, humility, and love. In Acts, Peter sees a vision of a sheet holding all the animals that have been declared unclean by the law. And God commands Peter to eat, but of course Peter objects, going, no, 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 I've never eaten of these things. And God says to him, why not? And he says, because they're unclean. And God says, do not call unclean that which I have called clean. And he doesn't say this, but in my version, Peter goes, uh, what? Like, that's not what? You're the one who call all these things unclean. And God's going, no. That was never really what I wanted. One way of reading this is the idea of accommodation. God always meets us where we are at, in our culture, for example, and moves us forward from there. So does God accommodate our need for sacrifice, which was seen across all cultures, and meet us and reveal himself within that system, not because he needed it, but because we did Another way of reading this is that they are shadows of God. Sacrifice, rituals, laws, even stories, traditions are all shadows. And then Jesus is the full reality. This isn't a new idea. In the second century, one of the fathers of the church, of the early church, Mileto of Sardis, in a beautiful piece of writing called On Pasha, says this, for there was once a type, but now the reality has appeared before we had all these images similes allegory glimpses ideas shadows and he calls them collectively a type an idea of what god was like a shadow of god but now the reality has appeared and the reality is jesus before we had the word small w which gave us ideas of god stories and allegories and images of god but now we have jesus the fullness of god with us to be seen and experienced and known and loved now we have the word capital w and the word was god and the word is god one leader in america i was discussing this with just this last week said they see jesus as their high ground as the high ground of scripture. Jesus gives them the perspective of shape of all scripture. It's all through him. This isn't a new idea. In fact, the idea that we just take scripture literally is actually quite a modern idea of the last 500 years. This flat view is quite a recent take. 
the early fathers, such as Origen, Ignatius, amongst others, saw Jesus at the centre of it all, transcending it all, bringing truth and beauty to it all. And this is what John is reaching for in his opening hymn of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God.